Okay, folks, so thank you for bracing the rain. That was quite a rain we had today. Fantastic. (laughs) Wild and beautiful. It's nice to see the, the hills greening up and the reservoirs filling up. I still, with, I still think we're in a, I'm not sure if we're still in extreme drought, we're still in a drought. Oh yes, thanks. So it's um, been interesting, so my book came out um, November 14th. Um, which is interesting timing, given the election on November 8th and the shock and uh, upheaval of that result for those of us who are expecting a different result. And um, the, you know, the, I've certainly been aware as I've been teaching um, and just uh, feeling the... Concern, anxiety, fear uh, amongst many people I'm uh, teaching um, about what's coming down the pipe. And we actually had a meeting at Spirit Rock. Uh, so I'm on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council. James was there and others. And uh, in response to uh, reflecting on you know, how we were responding to events uh, in the election and um, and uh, clarifying both how it has been for us personally, and and also as you know, as a teacher and teacher of the lineage, and uh, and, and it's Spirit Rock. What are we, um, you know, what are how what are we saying? What are we responding? How are we are we teaching in 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 this new context? And um, I'm sure James at some point will report back more about that. Um, but it was very inspiring, actually, and um, there was a real strong sense of uh, the teachers there committing to really speaking out and speaking up about what we stand for as a community, as Buddhist practitioners, as Buddhist teachers, as a community, and the values of uh, kindness, of tolerance, of inclusivity, of anti-racist, anti-sexist, uh, and um, uh, you know, it was just a, it was it was a kind of like a reinvigoration of one's values and one's uh, ethics and um, you know what we care about. Uh, since a lot of that, there's a lot of pushback with those kind of values. So, um, and then in relationship to this theme of the book, which is about the critic, you know, there's been. You know, we've had to live through this debacle of, a, of an election cycle that's gone on for the tedium of a year and a half of mudslinging and lies. And, you know, we're seeing the judging mind writ large, projected out all over the place in somewhat vulgar and gross ways. And um, uh, somewhat unabashedly, really. And uh, I mean, I remember, you know, like um, the town hall debate, the second of the three 
presidential debates, you know. It was just a lot of, I felt like I was back at high school with the high school bully, you know. Just the negativity, the finger pointing, the finger wagging, judging, shaming, ridiculing, and and it's really all the things that I'm writing about in my book, except most of that, for most of us, most of the time it's turned inwards. Shaming, judging, belittling, lying, putting down um, ourselves in different ways, gross or subtle. And of course, as we know from our own experience and from practice, that what we do inside is a reflection of what we see outside, and what we see outside is a reflection of what's in our own minds. It's not just happening on a presidential debate, as we know. It happens in the cloister of our relationships, in the cloister of our minds, and, um, you know, the... Uh, I was having this very interesting discussion with someone, who was that, Uh, about um, how, from his perspective, that uh, someone who's really worked a lot in uh, in D.C., his experience of finding people on the right uh, emotionally correct and politically incorrect, and those on the left emotionally incorrect and politically correct. In that, um, his experience dealing with people on the right in, in, the, in, the, in the halls of uh, Washington to be quite polite and pleasant for the most part. You know, I call them, well, I don't want to name names, but, um, and uh, those on the left can be very uh, righteous and indignant in a way that's actually um, more worthy of some reflection about. <laughs> so um, wherever we are on the political spectrum, you know, from the perspective of our practice and the perspective of these these wisdom teachings of Dharma. You know, we want to be looking at our own minds, our own hearts, and uh, to be really honestly looking at you know how we are you know contributing to uh, the well-being of ourselves and others, and how we're, we're contributing to the, the the distress and the pain of others and ourselves. And the reason that I decided to write this book, I didn't I didn't actually want to write it. I had other things that I wanted to write about, but. Um, this kept uh, kept knocking on the door. I, I once listened to a really fascinating talk, which I think is a TED talk, by Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, and her subsequent, not next book, but the following book, which was a gorgeous book called The Signature of All Things, which is a very, very beautiful book. If you haven't read it, it's a delicious prose. Um, she talks about how um, uh, ideas are like uh, living memes, uh, thought memes, and that they sort of hover in some kind of, who knows where, in the ethers, looking for a a conduit to come out. They're looking for, you know, mostly a human to grab it and write about it or articulate it. 
Um, and she's had she's had great stories of how she's had you know, very particular novels and details and, and plots and the whole thing, you know, kind of knocking on her door saying, you know, this needs to be written. And um, she uh, was was actually tried to write this novel and didn't didn't happen. It was set in 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 Brazil somewhere in the romance and tragedy and and. Um, and for some reason, she had got writer's block, couldn't finish it, even though she moved to, I don't know, South America to write it. And then about five years later, a good friend of us uh, sent to her a manuscript saying, hey, I wanted you to check this out. It's a really great book. And it was exactly the same book, almost, to a T, this you know, romance in South America and a plot and a tragedy. And, and uh, anyhow, so out of that, she said, you know, these... these uh, these these ideas, for, you know, for books and other things, and they're hovering, waiting for a good channel. And so um, I kept having this, <laughs> this thought meme of the critic knocking on my door, partly because I, you know, having worked with people for so many years as a therapist and coach and dharma teacher, I see that uh, one of the main sources of our personal suffering or uh, in, intrapersonal suffering uh, is our critic, is our judging mind, is the way that we berate and harangue and ridicule and belittle ourselves. And um, and how often mindfulness is not enough. It's actually going to be one of my potential titles, Mindfulness is Not Enough. In fact, I think there is a book. Oh yeah, Tejan Nair wrote a book called Mindfulness. Now, awareness is not enough. Right? You know, and in the, the mindfulness tradition, we rely on mindfulness a lot as the panacea to save all of our ills. <laughs> Clearly, looking at something like the election, mindfulness is not enough. <laughs> we have to get up off of our behinds and do something. Right? Um, so, uh, anyhow, so I decided to write about the book just because it felt like it would be a useful offering. There's, you know, there's a few books on the inner critic, but not one from the perspective of the Dharma and from this perspective of mindfulness and compassion, which I felt like are really important um, perspectives on it. And... Um, So the book's in the back, and that's my talk. I'm going home. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, let's just throw it onto you for a second. So um, anybody have an inner critic? Anybody have a judging mind? So what are your names for your critic? How does your critic show up? So I call the critic the critic. I call it the judge. I call it... The bully. I've got lots of different names for what, what. What what would you call your critic? Huh? Father. father. Yes. Mother. Father. Mother. Yes. What else? So sometimes it's the. Well, how do we experience it? Sometimes we experience it the taskmaster. Sometimes, so one student called it the itsy-bitsy-shitty committee. 
right? That it's not one particular voice or thought, it's a whole stream, it's a committee, it's a boardroom of almost sub-personalities telling us we're not good enough, we should do more, we've messed up, we're stupid. Um, so what else? It, all these different names I've heard over the years. Um, the killjoy, um, the perfectionist, um, the, oh, this one I like, the inner saboteur, sabotaging our well-being. Um, yeah, and there's the not good enough voice, right, 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 the taskmaster to telling us about the to-do list, yeah, yeah, so what is, what is your, what is your critic saying, anybody like to say what the, what the, what, what kind of message your critic has or what you hear other people's critic uh, saying, like, what's your critic on your case for? Like, what does it say? It's never enough, it's never enough right? The never, the not enough mantra, I call it. That we're never, a, you know. And in this context, you know, the the critic follows us wherever we are. So at work, you know, we're not, I don't know, whatever your work is, smart enough. You know, you come into the meditation center, you're not mindful enough. You're not Buddhist enough. You're not compassionate enough. You're not skillful enough, you know, whatever Buddhist frame you have, not devotional enough, not empty enough, right? not awake enough. Right? There's a lot of standards we can apply, yeah, not enough, yeah, not smart enough, not young enough, not healthy enough, not whatever, you know, your messaging is, internal or external. Yeah, what else does a critic get on your case for? Yes. Yes, the imposter syndrome. That is a popular one. Yeah. So we, we, when we listen to the critic enough, that's telling us, pointing out our flaws and foibles and deficiencies and not enoughnesses, then we start to feel uh, when we do do something like work or teach or have any kind of role or we're presenting or you know performing in some way, that, that that voice is saying, you know, if only they knew what I was really like. <laughs> you know, we're going for a, you know, job interview or we're interviewing for something, a new client, or, you know, and that voice is like, you're a fraud, you're a fake. Once they find out, they're going to, you know, there's, I, I write about a few examples in that, in the, in that chapter. So, um, you know, Facebook, what's the Facebook COO, Shel Sandberg, who's also written some books and is you know, quite a successful, uh, very successful uh, businesswoman and leader. And, and she says, if you know, I, I feel like if, if they really find out who I am, I'd get fired. <laughs> she, uh, Meryl Streep writes about, she says, uh, I don't know why people come to see me in movies. I think I always feel like they're going to stop coming because they're going to find out I can't really act. <laughs> the most, you know, not Academy Award nominated actress of all time, you know, doesn't think she can act. Right? John Steinbeck wrote in his in in his diary, um, uh, "Yeah, if only people 
realized that I can't really write, you know, something like that, you know, great writer. So it's very ubiquitous, this sense of believing that we're a fraud, you know, if, or if my partner, my beloved, my spouse, you know, found out, you know, really knew what I was like, they would leave. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and the Buddha, you know, I mean, you know, we're surrounded by these great, beautiful Buddha images. I'm looking at this one of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and, um, you know, the night of his enlightenment, you know, who comes to him, the, 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 the critic personified is Mara, you know, this, the, the, the symbol of unconsciousness and egoic forces and, Mara, you know, says to him as as the Buddha is trying to wake up, and uh, and the the voice of Mara comes and says, as as may have come to us, the voice says, "Who do you think you are to wake up? Who do you think you are to attain full enlightened Buddhahood? Who do you think you are to sit on this lotus throne? That's the throne, the seat where all the great Buddhas and." Bodhisattvas have sat in the past. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Right? We, we may have even been told that as a child. You know, don't be too big for your boots. In England, it's be seen and not heard. Or who do you think you are for being smarty pants or you know precocious? Or, right? Certainly got that imprinting somewhere along the line. And the Buddha, you know, in the in this. Famous mudra, which we'll probably see somewhere up there. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, touches this uh, hand to the earth and says, The earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. I have every right to be here. The earth witnesses you know, my nature, my practice. That just by being incarnate in this earth, we have every right to be here. And you know, the, and what was interesting in that story of the Buddha is that um, Mara comes and visits the Buddha. This voice of doubt comes throughout his teaching ministry, you know, decades after his awakening. That voice doesn't necessarily evaporate, even even in full awakening, which is humbling, right? because it means that these. Tendencies, right? The Buddha called them habitual tendencies, can endure, including uh, being negatively self-critical. And every time the Buddha, in, in these in these dialogues, the Buddha has with Mara, at some point, he wakes up and says, "Oh, Mara, I see you. Mara, I see you. Right? The power of mindfulness of recognition. I see you." And then the the Mara, Mara gets disappointed and, and dispirited that the Buddha's seen him and he kind of withers and cringes and you know, disappears and with his head stooped low and you know, he, he tries to foil the Buddha. The Buddha tries to catch him in that, in that sort of grip of unconsciousness. And you know, the Buddha being you know, somewhat, you know, being an awakened uh, person, you know, as we can be, see these voices, these negative self-doubts, and not buy into them. So, so it manifests as not enough, manifests as the imposter syndrome, 
manifests as perfectionism, right? Never doing it right. It's never, never quite up to standard. Right? So some of us are more perfectionist than others, or our perfectionism comes out with certain things in our work, perhaps, or our art, or our relationships, or um, you know, and it's and it's an impossible standard. There's no such thing as perfect in this world. It's a it's a messy, imperfect world. It's a beautiful world, and it's a, but it's an imperfect world. So um, the man, the critic manifests as having twenty twenty hindsight. Right? How many times have you looked back, right, at something you've done, something you've said, some decision, some life choice, some investment decisions, some relationship decisions, some something, and we're all having to navigate and make choices all the time. And, you know, of course, there's no right or wrong choice, but we can look back and go, well, if I really could do it over, I would, <laughs> I would have made some different choices. <laughs> anybody not, anybody regret some choices and decisions? They made? It's part of being human, right? Of course. We do the best we can with the information we can at the time, and you know, from hindsight, ten or twenty years later, we go, "Well, you know, I think there was a better way to have done that." <laughs> and um, you know, I bought a house, you know, in two thousand and seven. I think you know, it was a really smart move, you know, right before the precipitous crash. <laughs> Hmm, yeah, I think I would kind of, you know, 2020 hindsight, my critic had a few things to say about that. Because <laughs> it's still affecting my credit. Uh, and, um, you know, but from the perspective of, you know, of wisdom and, and awareness, we, you know, we do the best we can with the information we can. And, um, you know, we have to forgive ourselves, right? There's no point in berating and thrashing ourselves, right? And we do that thinking, well, if I just get on my case enough about a decision, I'll somehow not make the same mistake again. If I just really hammer myself for the stupid thing that was and tell myself how bad I was and foolish, that somehow that recrimination and judging is going to somehow make me wiser, you know, and, 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 make better decisions, you know. And all that kind of judgment does is just makes us feel bad, makes us contract, and makes us fearful about future decisions because we fear being so wrathful with ourselves if we get it wrong again, if we don't learn, right? So not a helpful um, process. So, you know, so with our practice, with mindfulness, we can um, and, and, and do shine the light on our inner experience. You know, I was um, actually meant to read some things from my book. Let me see if I have a, have a copy here. Could someone, could you pass me a copy? Oh, look at that. Just manifest right in front of me. Um, yeah, I should just read a little bit rather than talk the whole time. Um, so I was lucky enough to find um, the Dharma when I was young, and I needed it because I was a bit of a mess. Anybody a mess when they first came across these teachings? It's like part of the course, really, isn't it? In my late teens, I was a young man with a lot of rage. I was a punk rocker, hard to believe, but true. I had a white mohawk. 
If you don't believe me, you can go into my Facebook page, and somewhere on, on the wall is my uh, my assistant posted a picture of me with my white mohawk. I was a punk and anarchist and in constant search of a target for my anger. The punk rock and anti-establishment movements in the political underground in London were perfect outlets for my fury. Mostly it was directed towards the government, corporations, and injustice. You could say they were easy targets. What I didn't understand was that I had unconsciously become the target of my own hatred. My mind was filled with self-flagellation and through the murky lens, that murky lens, I was never good enough or smart enough. That deficiency tune was a mantra that played over and over in my head. Every decision, every move was wrong, stupid, or hopeless from my critic's point of view. Fortunately, however, my inner journey began when I stumbled into what was back then in 1984 a pretty rare thing, a meditation center in the heart of London's rundown East End. The moment I walked into the center, I realized that people working there were onto something. There was a clarity, a serenity, a purpose in their eyes in the way that they moved and talked. This was a quality that, that most people I were surrounded by lacked in spades. I didn't quite know what it was, but I wanted and needed it badly. And it was there I was exposed to my first toolkit. However, this was no ordinary toolkit. It was a set of skills unlike any I'd been exposed to. This was a toolkit for the mind. Up to that moment, I'd never really thought of turning my attention inward, never thought of looking at myself to see why I was so unhappy why I had this mental anguish. I was too busy looking outwards for someone or something to blame. But this turn and this inward this inward turn was the orientation I was being invited to cultivate. So I um, came across the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness and uh, it was very revolutionary. You know, if you, if you remember the time when you first started to meditate, it's kind of a wild thing. It's always that's why one of the fun parts of teaching meditation is um, often people have never really turned that lens of awareness inward to see, wait a minute, what's going on in there? And why am, why am, what is the source of my stress and anguish and dis-ease and confusion? And we start to withdraw the tentacles of blame and rage and uh, you know, looking to find fault, and we start seeing, oh, there's so many ways that I interrupt, that I, that I um, add to my own difficulty, my own stress, my own unhappiness by what I say, what I do, how I treat myself. Um, and what I discovered was, you know, my, I mean, it wasn't really... It's not like I didn't know it, but it just became so much more apparent. I had such a lot of self-hatred, such a lot of intolerance and judgment about myself. And, um, and it was sort of sobering. And to kind of take that step back and go, wow, that's really mean. You know, to listen to those voices the the tirade of the critic, you know, and there was a really significant turning point for me when I was in meditation one day. I'd moved into a retreat center when I was about 20, and um, I was meditating, and my critic was just, as it would at times, would just be very vicious, just going on and on and on about something. And I, I was kind of feeling my heart so normally when our critic's going, we're very much in our heads and sort of be, being a sort of quite 
allied with the critic. And instead of being up here, I was more here and feeling what it felt like to be talked to. Just like, you know, whenever, whenever someone is very vicious or critical with us, you know, in conversation, it's very impactful, right? whether we're children or as adults. And, and it's not that different with ourselves, except we don't really let it in. We don't really let ourselves feel how painful it is to be that harsh. And, and if we really listen to the heart, it's like, ooh, it's like a wound. It's like a, it's like a sore. And um, so when I, when I was feeling that in the meditation, it was something shifted. Like It's like, I don't want to keep doing that. This is really mean. This is really not serving anything except misery. So not that it evaporated overnight, because these things don't, just because we see them, we can have lots of insights, and we think, oh good, I've seen through, now it will go away. Well, it's not quite that simple. Sometimes, sometimes we see through and things, structures dissolve. But usually we need to see it over and over, we need to understand it, we need to understand why it comes, why it operates, why, you know, what keeps it going. So, And then the other practice that I began in, in the mid-80s was the loving-kindness practice. And I um, uh, have a lot of appreciation and, and respect for that practice. Uh, anybody, I assume you all know the loving-kindness. I mean, you've all been sitting a long time, most of you. Um, for those of you who don't, because a few people who said they were new here, um, the loving-kindness practice is really, you know, it's a heart practice where we generate kind wishes to ourselves, And, um, you know, why I think it's, and, and, and why I talk about, you know, the subtitle, how mindfulness and compassion can help free you from the inner critic, because when we can bring our heartfulness to ourselves, right, especially through that practice, that practice is potent because we're using words in the same way that the critic uses words. And those critic those critical judgmental words, you know, they, it's laid down deep neural pathways for years and for many of us decades, right? Not good enough, you know, smart enough, or whatever the story is. And then we suddenly start doing loving kindness practice, and um, that's replacing those negative statements with, you know, deep heartfelt wishes for our well being and happiness. That's supplanting, you know, we can't have two mind states in the mind at the same time if we're cultivating kindness for ourselves, right? It sort of knocks out the negative states, even just for a moment. And over time, that builds what I experience as a certain kind of reservoir of of warmth and goodwill. In the beginning, that wasn't the case. I had an iceberg of self-hatred and numbness, Anybody experienced numbness, wishing meta for themselves? I just finished teaching a week long of loving kindness at Spirit Rock. And, you know, we asked how many people have a hard time being kind or wishing loving kindness for yourself. You know, like three quarters of the the room raised their hands. Um, Which is always shocking to me, but not really shocking because it was true for me many years ago. 
And not shocking to me because mostly what we're listening to is that voice of the critic. So with our, with our mindfulness practice, we begin to see, do, how much do I listen to this voice? How much authority do I give this voice? How much reality do I give its perspective? Do I think, do I believe that what it says is true? Do I believe what it says is objective? Do I believe um, uh, that it has the final word about my character and, and my value and my worth? These are really good inquiries. Right? And maybe you do think it's true. You know. But even if it's true, is it necessary that we beat ourselves over the head with it? relentlessly every day. Maybe not. So there's a a chapter in the book where I explore the this m- making this important distinction between the judging mind that is um, more than just a bunch of words. So the, the, how we can distinguish a, a, what I call a judging thought, which is coming from the critic, versus a, 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 um, versus a, a thought like a, you know, an evaluation or an assessment or a discernment or a discrimination. You know, we all need to have a discerning mind in our lives. We make decisions, we're working, we're working with people, maybe you're therapists or lawyers or you know, you're in the healthcare profession. Of course we need that discerning mind to evaluate and assess and, and, dis- and make decisions. Um, so we're not throwing that out when I say we're, we're working with a judging mind. The judging mind in this context is um, the thoughts and statements that have... Uh, an implication about our worth as a person, as a human being. When the critic says, uh, for example, so, um, you know, and I'm sure I'm spelling out the obvious, but, you know, this is what I do when I teach. <laughs> Spell out the obvious. Um, for example, say you, you review your meditation at the end of your sit, which we sometimes do. We look back and go, well, it's, you know, we might say, when well, I was really distracted today, I was really preoccupied with some work issues or I was you know reflecting on my children's current dilemma and um, I really it was really hard to be present right? that's just a you know, simple evaluation the critic however will come in and say well that was crap <laughs> that was really pathetic you were really distracted and, and, you know, you're really not much of a meditator. And, you know, you've been doing this for so long, I can't believe it was that bad. I can't believe you're never going to get this, you know, right. You know, so it comes in and puts a whole different layer. It's not just talking about the content of the meditation, but it's, it's implying something about you as a person, that because you got distracted, you're flawed, there's something wrong with you, right? The two very different... Mm, uh, implications. One is purely just assessing, you know, we, we need to, that, that reviewing to refine and develop and learn and improve. And the other is 
is it's, it's a sting and, and it kind of creates a sense of deflation or collapse or feeling less or hopeless or unworthy. Or, and, it, and it might be subtle. It's not like necessarily as gross as I'm talking about, but it does um, uh, leave that kind of residue. And it is oriented towards um, <clears throat> that sense of um, uh, pointing to some flaw in our character. Which, if we believe over time, makes us feel like a fake or an imposter or unworthy or bad or stupid. Um, so to be mindful when when you when you know to be mindful of your thought, right? So thoughts, right? Which is really part of the third foundation of mindfulness. To be curious, you know, what's the content? What's the quality? What's the flavor of of these thoughts of these stories? And how much do you listen? How much do you believe them? How much objectivity do you give them? So one of the things I do when I'm doing workshops around the critic is um, I have people write out their judgments. <laughs> well, that was stupid, wasn't it? Just kidding. <laughs> See, fortunately, over time, we, we start to laugh at our silliness because we're all a little silly. Um... So where was I? Anybody remember what I was saying? <laughs> Someone has to remember. I don't have a memory anymore. Ah, huh? yes, workshop. Yes, right. I do workshops, and um, so I have people write out their their top ten judgments. Right? It's always a fun exercise, and then I have people um, reflect on them, inquire into them. Is it really true? You know, which when we when we, it's, when we read our judgments versus have them rattling around in the dark recesses of our brain, we bring a lot more sort of objective scrutiny to them because we have more training around being more objective with the written word than what's bumbling around here. So you might play with that at some point, you know, maybe go home tonight, just just write out your judgments and then read them and go, is this really true? Is it really true that I'm not good enough? Is it really true that... I am hopelessly disorganized, or I'm never going to get something together, or whatever, whatever your story is about yourself. Um, and then what I have people do is share them with one other person or more, um, which is always terrifying for people. <laughs> what do you mean I'm going to share my deepest, darkest secrets to, to somebody? And I say yes, and so they do that, hopefully. And what they see is that, you know, we kind of all have the same judgments for the most part. You know, you're stupid, you're not good enough, you could be smarter, you know, you know fill in the blank, you know. And, um, and then, so one of, the, one of the reasons I do that is because one of the, just like with so many things in practice, what makes the, the one of the things that makes the critic hard to bear is we think we're the only ones. We think the only ones that has this ruthless, you know, embarrassingly tyrannical voice that's judging everybody and ourselves. Right? But it's not true. Most people, you know, that I meet—not everybody, but most people—has a strong inner critic. It's probably what drove some of you to this practice, actually. And. Um, and it's really helpful to see, oh, I'm not in this alone. Just like, you know, when, when we share any of our suffering, we say, oh, I'm not the only one 
with a feeling of deficiency or emptiness or loneliness or whatever our story is. So um, most of the book is taken up with, with well, how, how do we work with it and what kind of practices and tools and techniques um, can we apply? Because that's really um, the point of our practice is to give us skillful means to work with our, with our dukkha, with our suffering. Right? And you know, mindfulness is key, recognizing, seeing, naming, disidentifying, finding spaciousness, seeing the belief, seeing the identification, seeing the reification, right? all, that, all that realm of mindfulness uh, practice and, and, and what it can do and the, the compassionate practices, whether it's loving kindness, um, you know, being tender with ourselves with the pain or sometimes being a mama, mama bear and being fierce when saying no, not helpful, not truthful, go away, not interested. Um, I personally like the, the, the Tai Chi uh, style with the critic, which is just, oh, that's interesting. Thank you for your point of view. Thank you for your opinion. That's really helpful. Not have a nice day, go bother somebody else, as Jack says. And um, so acknowledging, but not, you know, but just letting it pass through, you know. Just as if someone else had an obnoxious comment about it. And you say, mm, very interesting. Thanks for your point of view, but I'm not going to take that one on. Thank you very much. Um, and I like to use a lot of humor. Um, our critics are, you know, can be very uh, humorous in, in their sort of unreasonable demands. Um, I used to, and still do, dress, you know, imagine my critic with this gray barrister's wig, you know, his curly wigs they wear in England in court. Very bizarre and silly in themselves, as only the English can be. And, uh, you know, imagining, say, imagine it being saying bad... Buddhist, bad meditator, bad mindfulness, um, to make light of it, you know, to, to, to bring some, some spaciousness. Because when we can laugh at something, we can create space, right? Mindfulness is another way of creating space, as does humor. And, you know, if we listen to the critic, you know, it will berate us for, for not doing something. And then when we do it, it will berate us for doing it. You know, it'll tell us to relax and, and stop being so uptight. And why don't you sleep more because you're so tired and stressed out. So you sleep more and then it gives you a hard time for sleeping in because you should be meditating or doing something else in the morning like exercise. Right? So in a way, you can't win with the critic. So it's good to have a sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> yeah, many other strategies... Um, in the book, but I think I think mindfulness and kindness are really the key. You know, I think the loving kindness practice, as I said, is really one of the foundational um, practices that we build that reservoir of, of goodness, rather than looking at what we believe to be our flaws and, and, and inadequacies. Um, so maybe I'll close. Um, with a few words from the end of the book. So there's a few chapters there about life beyond the critic. And um, I'll just read a few things. So um, this is a quote from Henry Miller. Whatever the writer, Henry Miller, Whatever I do 
is done out of sheer joy. I drop my fruits like a ripe tree. What the general reader or the critic makes of them is not my concern. Whatever I do is done out of sheer joy. What would life be like if you were no longer persecuted by the critical voices in your head and lived your life as Henry Miller describes, doing things out of sheer joy, unconcerned about the critic? Imagine you'd been walking around with a 60-pound backpack and suddenly put that weight down. How would that feel? Like an incredible relief, a great lightening of the load. This is how it can feel to live free from the critic. The title of Milan Kundera's novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, has always struck me as a great expression for what happens when the burden of self-judgment is lifted. Life without the critic does have a lightness to it a sense of playfulness, ease, and inner peace. When I encounter people who are freed from the millstone of judgment, it is as if they've gotten a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. They get to play an easier hand in life than others. They're less caught up in self-recrimination, second-guessing, and fixating on their problems or faults. They view mistakes as learning opportunities, laugh at their foibles, and smile when they can't find their keys. That references... I. There's a, one of my common references is um, I often can't find my keys. You know, you think it would be easy just to put your keys in the place that's you know the same place every time, but you know we're human and I don't, and I'm often you know I leave it pretty, I, I, I cut it fine with timing, and I'm often on my way to Spirit Rock to teach a meditation class, you know, in mindfulness or something. But of course, I'm not going to be there on time because I'm trying to find my keys. And, um, and of course, my critic has a lot to say about that. <laughs> and, um, and whenever it comes up, which it does still about that, I just say, well, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. Thank you very much, Mr. Critic. People who are relieved from their critics seem to be optimists, viewing others with appreciative eyes. They recover easily from setbacks. They look at the world with the attitude that the glass is half full. The glass half empty is simply not an option. And on it goes. So maybe you've met people who don't seem to be so burned with their critic or have done work with their critic that they're not, no longer in its grip. And there is a lightness to that, does it? Does it, and maybe we've noticed those times in ourselves when the when the critic is, you know, we we work through it. We're not so uh, entranced by it, and you know, it comes up and we laugh or we joke or we tease ourselves, and it's just you know, it's just not a problem. It's just I am who I am, and I'm imperfect and human and full of foibles and idiosyncrasies and wackiness, and and I love myself just as I am. Thank you very much. So. Um, that it's possible, you know. We, you know, this practice is very re- revolutionary in that we're not on a permanent self-help, personality improvement program. We're on a radical meeting and allowing ourselves to be as we are and being with ourselves with loving kindness and, and acceptance, just like we are with everybody else. So, um, so that that the, the book and the teaching is really in in support of that. So any questions about any of that? Any, um, what, what do you have to say about your critic or what have you learned or what would you like to hear? Anybody like to share?
Do you have something to say? Oh, okay. You want to grab it? Don't need the mic, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, You're recording. Okay, now you can hear my voice. Um, what would be a skillful means to work with uh, kind of the comparing mind of the critic because mm-hmm. it comes up, you're not good enough, or here we are in Silicon Valley, and you see the inequities. Mm. Uh, and that comes up, whether it's for myself personally or others that I'm around and seeing people have to leave here. I'm not good enough. It's mm-hmm. time for me to go. Well, I think of the, criti- the comparing mind as the sister of um, the critic. You know, it's, it's uh, um, one of the twins, you know, the comparing, judging. Actually, there's, a, the, there's three, what are the three things? Twin, triplets? Yeah, there's the triplets. The judging, comparing, and there's one other one. What is it? I can't remember what it is. Huh? No, it's way more negative than that. Um, judging, comparing, and uh, anyhow. But that's two is enough. Um, so, uh, you know, in a way, they sort of feed off each other. The company, you know, we walk into a room, and you know, from a Buddhist point of view, comparing is a form of conceit, right? The Buddha talked about we're either better than, worse than, same as. Doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. It's all the ego trying to. F- figure its place out, right? And it's always moving. It's, it's a moving target, you know? You go into one meeting, and you're the smartest, most experienced, whatever person in the room. You go to the next meeting, and suddenly you're way out of your league, and you, you feel like you know, you're just starting off, and these people have vast experience, and suddenly now you're at the bottom of the token pole, and, and it's a very insecure, unstable Mm, dynamic, and then the critic comes in, and especially if we're on the well, either way, actually, if we're if we're feeling uh, the the conceit, then we have an inflated view of ourselves, and then if we're feeling diminished, you know, negatively comparing, then we we uh, you know, we feel that diminishment and deficiency, and so either way, the critic is operating leaving us feeling very sort of insecure in who we are and where we stand, and it's very it's suffering. The whole thing is suffering. So, um, uh, you know, again, with the, with the lens, the laser lens of mindfulness, we, we start to see that, and we start to see the whole thing is just a game. It doesn't mean anything. It has no reality to it. And the less we feed it, the less we, we're going to be caught in it. We just see, oh... There my mind goes again, thinking I'm better than, worse than, same as. It's not, it's just a, it's just a, a mind game. And, um, you know, and to feel the suffering of it, you know. Because, you know, even if, it's, even if we're feeling inflated, we know that the inflation will only last until the next deflation. And then, the, 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 you know, either the inflation, the heart of the fall... So, um, um, you know, it's really holding all of those mental constructs, whether it's judgment or comparing or conceit, very lightly. And, 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 and really not seeing, really seeing uh, the folly of, of 
those, those ideas, you know, and the painfulness of the ideas. And, um, you know, we can, and, and the, the, that, that part of the mind, the critical comparing mind, can really write people off based on certain things, you know, based on certain criteria that can be very mean or cruel. So, um, you know, so I think, you know, again, we bring mindfulness and compassion to both of those things, or particularly awareness. And just see, and just, you know, of course it's happening by itself. And it, it's a very deep tendency, egoic tendency. And then the Buddha said that conceit is the last of the ten fetters to go, the subtle restlessness of selfing. Is the last thing to go before full awakening. Right? So, you know, way, way after the force of greed and hatred has been uh, uh, released. Right? So it's just it's a very subtle dynamic of the mind. You know, always looking for reference point for, for some sense of self. Right? Gross or subtle. You know, Does anybody have a better question than that? Just kidding. <laughs> See how the mind does it? You know, you know. Like I mean, I was taught in a presentation skills workshop. Don't say good question. That's a great question because the person who didn't get that great question suddenly thinks, "Well, wasn't my question great?" <laughs> right? And and and, and it, you know, we're very vulnerable in that way. You know, they come, it's painful. Yeah. I'm just playing with you, as you know. <laughs> well, you, you touched on what I'd been thinking about as you were talking, um, when you're talking about the selfless, kind of the, sort of the end of, or the beginning of enlightenment, however you want to think about it. It, it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is, is what we do with self. We take it personally. Mm-hmm. We take all these, and we take that critic personally, and and... My understanding is, you know, the enlightenment path is actually to to get beyond that personal, mm-hmm. um, selfless. I guess the selflessness. Does that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just a as a as a as uh, yeah. It's it's a bunch of thoughts about a selfing construct that is 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 a construct. And, um, but to the extent that we believe in that self-construct, it's very painful. <laughs> right? And the, the less we buy into the belief in that self, in that constructed sense of self, constructed sense of identity, the less it impacts. I mean, that's really the, 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 the deeper resolution, is seeing... Um, that it's all made up. It's all made, it's a mind trip. And it's none of it's real. In the same way that when we share our judgments with people that know us and love us and we say, is this, does this seem true? And they go, no. <laughs> that is actually a very distorted, inaccurate assessment of who you are. It's similarly untrue on that level also. So... Um, but yeah, no. This is this is the, you know when the Buddha talked about the fundamental source of suffering is the mistaken sense of and of identity and the way we take birth in that identity 
the, the, the inner critic is just one manifestation of how much pain uh, gets created around that construction. Okay? But we can't dismiss it if we believe it. If we believe it, it's a very real construct, right? which is why we practice, why we develop mindfulness and insight to see through that construct to see, to have a sense of spaciousness and lightness and ease with it, right? which you know, takes time and practice and s- cutting through and seeing and letting go. And, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, um, I'm aware we're out of time here, so um, I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for your... Did you, was it a quick thing you wanted to share? No? Okay. Why don't you just say it, just so we know. We'll take a minute. Yeah, uh, I was encouraged by a therapist in recent years to look at shame. Mm -hmm. And so I've identified my shaming voice. And Mm -hmm. I've invented uh, what I call my defense attorney. Uh So uh, in addition to the awareness of, of the critical voice, I'm consciously asking my attorney to come in and give the argument, and I have to do it, actually. So Uh it helps Uh me. Yeah, good. I like that defense attorney. (laughs) Anyhow, so let's just take a moment to um, send out uh, good-hearted wishes and kindness and blessings, our wishes for their welfare and happiness and health and ease. And may all beings everywhere be at ease, be free from the torments of their inner critic, and know the peace of their true nature. Thank you, everybody. Nice to be here with you all. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.